Hi there. Welcome to the Hoyt Bowhunting Podcast. I'm Alan Bolin, your host today. I'm joined with Hoyt host Evan Williams, who is the pro staff manager at Hoyt. And we have the pleasure today of visiting with Ryan Carter, who is a Utah outfitter that specializes in bow hunting giant bull elk. He's had tremendous success. I've watched Ryan's success for years. I mean, it's one of those things where you just like, you're kind of green with envy when you look at his Instagram page. This guy, he's, he's always got these giant bull elk on camera. And then, and then two months later, you see some hunter with his hands around the antlers. He's, he's very, very successful. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me on. And it's our pleasure. I'm just lucky sometimes. That's all. You're just lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah how many I don't know how you get... you're hanging on to. <laughs> <laughs> lucky time after time after time. I, I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, you know, Ryan, uh, one of the things about, about your job, you know, bow harvesting these giant elk is a lot of people complain. I hear it all the time. People complain about the dates of the archery season for Utah limited entry elk. Um, typically they end, what is it around the 10th of September or something like that? Yeah. 10th, 12th, 13th, somewhere right there. So I hear it all the time, man, it's no fair. The rifle hunters get the rut. We, right when the rut started was the last day of the season. I hear this all the time yet you're always super successful. So let me ask you this. First of all, do the dates bother you? No, that the the dates have uh work well for me um it's funny i've said it a bunch of times but i would almost take a utah archery tag on a specific unit over the gov tag because i can kill the bull a couple weeks earlier wow my success drives around early season patterning and so for me like in august the bulls are still patternable running the same routes they were in july and june a lot of the time that doesn't shift gears till Labor Day. So I've turned what I do in, into more of a early season game. I, I don't necessarily like the rut because the rut's five times as much work for me. Wow. Um, the bow what do you season, mean by work? Well, bow season, like my preferred style is ambush. So I like tree stands. I like blinds. I like sitting on wallows, water. Wherever I've got these bulls to pattern, I get them on a rotation. I find their most consistent spots. That's kind of what I've learned to do. That's why I like the early season. Second, the rut kicks in. These elk do just like mule deer, like whitetails. They start cruising for does, cows. They, they're out. They're, there's no pattern. There's no consistency. There's no home turf. They sleep where they are. In the early August season, there's home turf. And so I've taken Utah's bitched about archery season and made it work for me. No kidding. And that's, well, that's why like good people are successful, right? I mean, we, we, you just got to turn the tables a little bit and figure out, well, how's this going to work for me? So I'll take those first 10 days. That's when I book my hunters. I'm like, you know, keep a few days in the rut in case our first 10 days don't play out. Typically, we we knock them out in those first ten days. So, so you hunt them like whitetails. Yeah, so you're you're applying early season whitetail tactics to these these early season velvet bulls. That's exactly what I'm doing. Like Evan knows, I'm a whitetail freak, and and that's like what I did. I I took the same because they're 
the pre, the post, the rut, the lockdown, everything involved with whitetail season, I can do without. It's just bigger. Instead of running on a two acre or 20 acre plot, I'm running an 18 mile rotation on 14 different rotations. You know, it just depends on which bull we decide to chase. So, so for a guy coming in that, you know, is hunting on his own, that drew the tag in Utah, and he just shows up opening day of the season expecting to hear bugling and chasing bugles, and he's know there, he knows there's elk in the area, but doesn't know their specific patterns, he's going he's gonna to have a tough time if he's not in on this like you are, right? He's not going to see anything. Like, unless he's, you know, you, you can hunt them just like you do mule deer if you have an area you can glass. Like, my specialized area is mesas. I'm a southern Utah guy. I spend all my time on the San Juan, the boulder. There's not a lot of high peaks. There's not a lot of lookouts. I rely heavily on trail cameras. That's what I have to do. That's how I find them. That's how I pattern them. So you get a guy in those specific units to show up opening day that hasn't done anything. He's not going to see an elk for two weeks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I mean, I've even had rifle hunters call me three days, three, four days into the hunt and still not seen an elk. I've heard them bugling. I know I'm close. I just can't get in on a bull because those mesas are hard. Like it is, it's hard work. You got to do a lot of homework on those units. That's why there's giant bulls in Southern Utah is because it's not easy hunting. Like just not have so many places to hide and get away because you can't you can't glass them. Hey, you stand two hundred yards <laughs> away, like you can't see them. It's too thick, so they don't need to hide. They don't need to have some hidden canyon. They just have to shut up and hold still, and we can't kill them. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And, they, and they've probably the the smarter older bulls have, you know, they probably don't bugle unless they really feel they have to, because they know if I make noise, they're going to be after me. And I've been, I've hunted, we, my hunting outfit in Canada, uh, we had an elk area for several years and the, the wolves trained the bulls to not bugle because when the bulls would bugle, the wolves would be on them. And so these, bu these bulls became very, very quiet. They would bugle in the peak of the rut when it was absolutely the most necessary. But other than that, they wouldn't make a peak peep because they were calling in the wolves. So you would think that on public land, you know, bulls would catch on eventually. Hey, when I make this noise, usually there's these guys coming in with bows and arrows, you know, flinging sticks at me. So they may be conditioned. What's your opinion on that? Oh, I, it, that's the, that's what they do. They're smart. Like that's why they're hard to kill is because their instincts are better than ours. My biggest bulls are lay next to the highway all summer long. People don't believe me. They think they're in the furthest, highest peaks up in the cliffs. And I'm telling you, they like to stay by the cars because there's less predators. Wow. So <laughs> like one of the bigger bulls we ever killed. Um, so Kyle Ostrin in 17, like he, uh, we ended up killing him way high uh, up in the cliff lines, but through his summer patterns, the most consistent photos I got were within 200 yards of a major highway. Like he just sat there and listened to cars go by. He, I think he felt safe by the highway because there's less predators. I, I think that was part of the deal. So what do you think attributed to that bull summering so low down there close to a highway, but harvesting him 
way up in elevation above that. Do you think, I mean, he moved because of all of a sudden increased traffic from hunting pressure or did he just, he summer down there and knew that once, once season opened up and he started seeing more foot traffic, he could, he could get back into a basin. He had food and water and shelter and, and everything he needed. It was, it was two things. So one, it was, um, so, so the bad thing about Kyle, he, he jumped the bull walking into a stand on day three. Oh. So what happened with this bull is I had him on a, on a, geez, if I remember right, it was a 10 day, seven day pattern. So I would lose him for 10 days. Like a lot of my bulls, I get them clicking. So it's like every six days he hits this one spot or every eight days or every like nine days he's in there for three days and then he moves on. Um, that bull in particular, I would lose him for 10 days and then he'd be in for six or seven. Okay. And Kyle on day three was going in on stand cause he was there, jumped him mm. like on his way to his stand. I was Kyle, 15 minutes from the highway, <laughs> <sighs> jumped him in the low country. The bull peeled. I knew we were done for 10 days. Um, well, that was the feeling Kyle. We had hopes that he'd come back and he didn't. 10 days later, he did come back and he just wasn't coming directly under the stand. We had to shift to a blind in a wind shifty spots. We put an Ozonics in there. Kyle smoked him the next morning. It was the last day of our 19 day rotation before he peeled again. Jeez. And at that time, I think he was pushing some 30, 40 cows. It was pretty cool. Wow. That's a lot of eyes to deal with too. Yeah. So what kind of days was uh, Kyle sitting? Like what would the normal day in the stand? Is it morning and then you take a break and then uh -huh. night? Yeah. And that's the, one of the hard things about early season. It's exhausting. The guys have to get up by four, four ten in the morning to make it. Cause typically there's a decent like four wheeler truck ride, then a 45 minute hike in, and then you're sitting for, tell i tell them to pull typically about 10 as far as my pictures on my cameras go elk stop moving around 9 15 9 30 during certain times of year august right mm -hmm. so then they pull but usually by three especially if we're having a good monsoon season they got to be back in stand so they have five hours where they can peel out go take a nap eat lunch crawl back in stand but then by the time you get in stand and sit till 9.45 at night when it gets dark, dark. right? Yeah. <laughs> then your 45-minute hike out and your 30-minute back to camp, you get into camp at 11.30, you got to be back up at 4, and you still got to cook dinner. Mm -hmm. So those naps are almost necessary because it's a long damn day. That sounds like my normal day. What are you talking about? <laughs> 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 you don't look tired enough for that to be your normal day. <laughs> I was asleep at 1130 last night and up at 440 this morning. Nice. Wow. Intense. That That's that's pretty cool how you were talking about the uh, the, the cycles uh, that you've actually identified. You know, in, you know, we've we've all seen that those of us who've used cameras that, you know, animals will show up you know, not every day, there's usually a break in between, but it sounds like you've gotten it more to a science where you're seeing like, there's a certain break in their pattern that, that gets them to that by that camera every so often. That's super mm -hmm. interesting. I do you ever get, get bulls that are by a certain camera every day or no. nearly every day. Mm -mm. 
No. Um, younger bulls' patterns are smaller. And we kill young bulls. The, the nice thing about Southern Utah, you can have a six-year-old bull that'll break book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to have the 12-year-old bulls like other places have to have for them to be giant, giant bulls. So a lot of times I can have big bulls on a tighter pattern. It's only a six mile loop or an eight mile loop. And it's not that I lose their patterns. It's that, or they break pattern. It's that I lose them. That's all it is. Like I've got a hole in their loop that I can't find, Mm -hmm. but you know, the big bulls, man, their loops can be big. Like big, big. I I have one that crosses over a plateau, and if you were to walk around it by on foot, it's like eighteen miles, which he does. But when he goes over the plateau, he it's only two or three mile jump, and mm-hmm. then he walks around the plateau back. And then I'm like, okay, that takes him eighteen days. So I've got to kill him before he hits that pinch. Otherwise we're going to be hunting him in the rut and there's no cows here. So he's not going to show up. I've got to pull over here. Yeah. And you got to switch your whole strategy, but there's a lot of holes you have to fill in before you learn that that's what they do. And, and a pretty big camera strategy game too, from what direction are they coming into my camera and what direction are they leaving? And then trying to space cameras out in, I'm assuming in almost concentric circles, trying to figure out where they're hitting and then are you using like a mapping software to kind of figure out where bulls are at and using like, how are you organizing your bulls in those patterns? Well, um, so I don't like nothing's concentric. It has more to do with sources, right? So elk like benches, elk like wallows, like water. They have to have water. They're as big as a horse almost. Right. So, I mean, they go through almost 10 gallons of water a day. There has to be water. There has to be a travel route and elk don't like going up and down like a Iowa whitetail. I have one that does it just one and he's a weirdo, but the rest of them will travel benches and they'll, they'll leave shelves. And sometimes like the cattle come in on that bench and the elk just shift up a bench. And so if I can locate those things, it's never a concentric circle. It's more like, ah, here's an opening with water here. Here's, here's a big bench that's covered in oak brush elk like acorns so it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out well i ought to put a camera here in august because they're going to be hitting it hard right so mm-hmm. i take just behavior like typical elk behavior kind of things and i make guesses and that's all i do and so like in the summer i get started with cameras like in may and i'll start putting i put 60 cameras out mm-hmm Once I go check those cameras four weeks later, I figure out, okay, I've got two hit list bulls on this route, two on this one and one up here. I'm going to pull 40 of those cameras back to where those three bulls are and lay out 18 more in each section in the most obvious spots, because then I can start filling in their holes on what that pattern's doing. Now, the nice thing about some areas I've hunted there long enough, I kind of know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of those cameras preset and it's all good. But like this year in Colorado, like we threw out 13 and go back in with 27. Like we're still struggling. I, it, you know, it, it doesn't always play out. It's hunting. That's why it's hard. Okay. To, you know, trophy hunting for giant, giant bulls is stupid. <laughs> right. <laughs> you make this sound the way you're describing it. It sounds easy. 
And I've, I mean, I know enough to know that that is not what you've, what you've done there and the way you figured that out. And, you know, to, to say, yeah, this bull makes an 18 mile loop and I just pick him up once every 18 days. I mean, that sounds really easy and simple, but that that's, that's pretty incredible what you've been able to put together there mentally, uh, mm-hmm. to understand their routes. Let me ask you this. What, what's, um, on, on, a, on a given bull, do you, do you regularly pick them up more than once in their pattern? Or is that kind of a rare thing to have like, oh, I got him here, and then five days later I got him here, and then 10 days later he's back to spot number one, and then five days later he's back to spot number two? No, that that's, has to be what I do. Otherwise, You I have to get him more than once? Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll have him to where... Uh, so I, I got this bull, I post him pretty rare because he's finally gotten big enough. I keep him kind of quiet, but I think he's dead. He hasn't hit cameras this year. Uh, my last pictures of him in October, he was missing an eye and he had a big gore in his sinus right here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he get, probably got an infection in the winter and died because he hasn't showed up yet. But that bull in particular, I had 42 cameras running on him. Oh my and, gosh. And every Jeez. year I have kids show up like, oh, we're going to kill this bull. I got pictures of him. I'm like, awesome. Good luck. I want to see you do it. <laughs> because I already know where he's daylighting, where he's not, and how this bull enters and exits. And he's a smart old bull. He, well, he's not even that old. This year he would have been 10. Um, but he, like last year, he went completely nocturnal on us. And it was funny because as I narrowed in his patterns, we were putting cameras in and out 200 yards of his entrances and exits. And he would get up out of bed maybe 10 minutes after dark. And he would walk in to the stand location and stand there till for, for 45 minutes. I mean, I'm sitting there getting pictures of him for 45 minutes because he's just standing there with an ear twitching. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like... It, you know, it's 1045, he feels fine and he tiptoes into the meadow and he literally tiptoes. Like, it's the weirdest thing. We had the hardest time killing him. I, I kind of, I hope he's still alive because he's my most pattern bull and I'd love to see him dead. He was a solid 390 <sighs> last year with 70 something inches of mass. He's huge, yeah. huge. But if he's dead, he's dead. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the name of wow. the game. So. But, but 42 cameras on one animal. Clicking. Yep. That's unbelievable. And on how many of those cameras did you see him? All of them. That's why they're there. It, it's like they were, they were they're, filling they're, holes. They're, they're, establishing, really. they're establishing that pattern. Right. So he's taking this trail and not this and trail. And he wasn't showing up. We pulled it and moved it to a new spot because we wanted his full rotation. Yeah. And that's we, unreal, man. We did okay with it, but. We never killed him, so. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you feel, especially, and I don't want to call that pressure because of how you're you're moving things around. Do you feel that they are like a mature whitetail in the sense that they can feel your presence in basically their home turf, and that could potentially send them nocturnal check-in cameras, all of that. I've never had elk vacate an area because I went in and checked in on camera. Okay. I've had them walk in on me while I'm checking the camera, taking pictures of them, 
had him walk off and then had him right back in there an hour later. Okay. I, I don't think elk feel the people pressure like a whitetail does. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, I wear rubber boots in whitetail country. They bird dog nose on the ground. They follow, they get people pressure in there. They're out. I've never had that with elk, not during the rut pre post. It might happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I just, I haven't experienced it. So you don't feel the need to control scent, wear rubber boots, things like that. Nope. Yeah. I spray down my cameras with a, at the same uh, carbon spray I use whitetail hunting. It Mm -hmm. seems, and even more for bears than for elk. Mm. Bears will sit and chew on your cameras the best they can, even in a metal box. And so um, I spray them down. It's, it's more for bears. (laughs) How does uh, the weather and, and things like moon phase affect what you're doing with this, this pattern? Um, well, moon can be huge, but moon is more rut based type behavior. And so as far as, so as far as moon goes, I, and I'm a big believer in moon, especially if you're focusing your hunt around the rut, like I book my whitetail hunts based on the moon. I, I book them. Like I look at the moon and say, okay, this year I, I got a full moon, the 20th. So I, I'll book my hunts on the new moon on like the 28th through November 2nd. And then I'll do the same for Illinois and, you know, November 14th. And I'll book them based on that. And I would for elk as well. If I was hunting the rut, if I was a rut hunter and I wasn't trophy hunting and we didn't, we didn't get into it, but I, the reason I hate the rut is because I'll call in 20 bulls to one that's even par. Right. And I'm not looking for par. We're looking for trophy class. We're looking for the age that other guys can't get done. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. So when you're bugling bulls, your odds of one breaking 375 on any unit in Utah is one in 200 bulls. I mean, you are putting on miles. On a on a good day of calling, I'll do maybe 13 miles. On a bad day of calling, we'll do 21, 22 miles. Wow. Because And those bigger bulls calling, are likely to be more call shy too, right? They're going to be smarter. So not and, only are you playing the odds of, of and, and you don't know what's going to come in. Or, mm. or what do you think, Ryan? Well, limited entry units in southern Utah, it's not so much. It's okay. not like they're getting so much pressure that they're like going to shut up because there's so many people in there. I mean, the fact of the matter is a lot of guys won't work for it. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. No, Nobody wants to do 10-mile days, let alone 15-mile days. I don't seem to get the people pressure that you hear about in, like, Idaho. But you have more tags available there. You know, I, I'm on a unit where there's 70 tags total for the year. Only 18 of them are rifle tags. I got 18 guys, and each of those 18 guys might have five buddies helping them. So there's 60 guys on the mountain, but we're talking about, it takes me six hours to drive around that unit. Jeez. Right. Yeah. So 60 guys is nothing. So I don't have that problem per se, them shutting up from people, but you know, it's just big country. So yeah. for, for killing a giant bull, are you saying that you would, you would take the archery tag over the rifle tag now, assuming same weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, the, like I said, everybody complains about the Utah archery dates. Mm-hmm. You prefer those dates. It's not I just that them. you've made them work. Not the weapon. Yeah, it's 
I'd prefer the dates. You prefer the dates. Unbelievable. That's really cool, man. I, and it makes sense, especially for a big bull. Now, if you're if you're hunting a 320 bull, then the rut could be a blast. 350 bull. Have a great 350 time. 350 bull. Okay. You, you will do well. Like, like if for, for a unit where we've managed our age class, and there's only, well, there's supposedly four, the boulder, the San Juan, the beaver, and the roadless books. Those are our premium mm-hmm. elk units. Roadless books, the age class isn't what they say it is. And honestly, the beaver boulder and San Juan isn't either. I I can't tell you how many times I get age class back on bulls. I know exactly how old they are. I've watched these bulls for years. I know this bull is nine, yet his age report comes back at 14. Really? Yeah. It so that's not that's not accurate. You're finding that's not accurate. It rarely, rarely. Is, is it the accurate. teeth? Is that what they use? I, they they have a big questionnaire where they go over width, antler size, blah blah blah, and then you send in the two bottom teeth. Yeah, I, I had one guy send in his son shot a spike a week after we shot his big bull. He sent in his spike, and I think they took the information off the other one and gave him. It said his bull was fourteen. Now that bull was only seven and a half, and he went four oh three. I know how old he was. <laughs> but was he no sent in the spike teeth. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and he came back at 14. So I, That's dude, I, science right there, gentlemen. Well, wow. I, I think if you really care about that stuff, send them into a private place. There's a couple places that do age verification. There's, there's one in Montana. There's one in Colorado. If you really care about age class, send them into those places and you will get a, a, a real result. I, I think mm-hmm. the States, I, I'm not accusing anybody, but I think they little biased because they want to give out, a specific number of tags that's income that's conservation there's a lot of like factors in there and i think they fill them to where they need them to be i, I don't know if that's true but wow what and, i do and, know is like those results don't come back right I, I like you that. like you were saying with the with the genetics that southern utah has you don't need those 10 12 14 year old bulls you're seeing that out of seven eight nine year old bulls Mm. going book class and i mean again trophy like they have the genetic potential that they're hitting that at half the age of other units in great states well i i don't see them break you know the the magic f word right the 400 mark i don't see them break that till at least eight years old yeah so if you're so looking, would for, you prefer to see more age class, Ryan, a higher age class? Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. you prefer Utah gave out less tags in those four units? No, I think we've got to have both. I, as much as people bitch, I, I really think Utah does a decent job because one of the biggest problems with Utah is that we have too many hunters. Mm-hmm. The, the rest of the nation doesn't have this problem. They're begging for people to come hunt. You go to Virginia, for instance. For $110 as a non-resident, you get a bear tag, 16 turkey tags, 20 doe tags, and two buck tags for 110 bucks. Wow. There's not enough hunters there. They can't kill everything. But here in Utah, our point creep just keeps going up. Yeah. It's ugly. That point system's going to, I mean, my kids will never draw a tag. Your kids will never hunt. Yeah. It's something has to reset, especially for the once in a lifetime it's it's absolutely ridiculous. I've been saying this for years. It, the system doesn't make sense. All the people drawing tags are going to be in their 80s. It, I guess they can gift them to their grandchildren, right? Well, and I, I love it. I want to see the age class. I, I want that. But at the same time, 
I don't want someone's kids. Can you imagine being a 12 year old coming into hunting now? Yeah. You have six years where there's some youth assistance available, mm-hmm. right. You, to get them involved in hunting, but at your 20 year mark, you, you know, once you're 18 and you're only six points in now, you're 12 points below the point creep. You don't even have a chance in your lifetime to statistically no. draw a tag. Now you can get the random lucky tags, right? Yep. But the max point pool tags that are allocated to the guys with the most points, statistically, never even a chance. It's not not in happen. ten lifetimes yeah. to get a tag. Yeah, I want to say we ran the uh, the Buffalo odds for the again the guaranteed percentage, and it was like two hundred and thirty plus years mm-hmm. to be in that guaranteed point pool. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. unbelievable. Yeah. Perfect. So, so as a resident, I look at Buffalo and I'm like, there's no way in hell I'm putting in for Buffalo because I can go to Montana on a reservation and shoot one for a thousand dollars and have the same fun experience. It's just not going to go in the record books. Yep. Well, as a non-resident, the draws are so expensive too. Somebody should calculate the odds of taking that same money that you would invest into those tags and going to Vegas and putting it on the blackjack table and playing the odds. And if that would get you that same tag at a higher odds than going into the draws. <laughs> and yeah, and just go buy it. Yeah. Well, the, yep. That is another nice thing about Utah is that, that we do have uh, options for for uh, auction type tags. They set aside. Yeah, that's right. uh, that is great. And I think that's awesome. I think it's great. People complain about it and I'm like, Dude, what's your priority? Set your money aside, do your thing, come buy a tag. And and the money that that goes towards, especially, you know, the, the Mule Deer Foundation banquet through Western Hunting Expo, like that is millions of dollars that goes towards wildlife Seven, conservation. 7.8 or something this year. Yeah. Huge. It was insane. Huge. Mm-hmm. So, Ryan, and, and Wyoming's got a similar system with their super tag system. Yeah. So... Ryan, I want to get back on this uh, the, the elk tactics because you know honestly, I was when I was prepping for this, Evan and I were talking about this. Typically, when I go into a, a podcast, I'll feel like my knowledge on the subject is pretty high, so I'm going to be able to contribute a little bit. And Evan and I were both of the consensus that you know you are like so far ahead of us on early season elk tactics. We really have no knowledge whatsoever in comparison to what what you have on the table. So we really, I, I, there's a, several questions I have. I'm, like, I'm dying to know some of this stuff. Um, could you talk about stands? And, you know, I know elk country is notorious, notoriously swirly winds. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, I, I think about, man, this bull's going to come by once every 10 days. And I've got one chance every 10 days. And I've put in like, you were, you, you were describing 10, 10 hours a day in the stand you know, five hours a night of sleep and I get one chance every 10 days and I'm sitting in this tree stand and the world wind is swirling in every direction. Like all of a sudden my confidence is in the toilet. So how do you, how do you set up your stands, you know, to manage the wind? Are there, are there, do you actually like target certain areas to put cameras where, you know, there's a good stand set up? based on the wind. Do you believe in like ozonic scent control? What, you know, can you talk about that? Again, I, both of you have hunted whitetails. So you know more of these answers than you think you do. It's the same thing. I have morning sits. I have evening sits. So even though elk country is notoriously swirly, typically 
as in anywhere else, when the weather's cooler, you have a consistent pattern, Mm -hmm. you know? So early in the morning, your wind's going downhill, right? Whichever way downhill is, that's kind of pretty consistent till 9 a.m. But that's why my guys are out of the stand before 10, because that's when the wind starts doing this. And so we got a pull. I also have a lot of my bulls will have an evening stand and a morning stand, just like you would with whitetails. Cause you know, you show up in Nebraska and the evenings you have a Northeast wind and the mornings you have a Southwest wind. So you'll have a stand on one side of the draw in one way and one side of the draw on the other, because that's how the wind blows there. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing. You I, will set up two stands at some locations mm-hmm. based on whether or not you're hitting it morning or evening. Okay. Yep. So I'll have a Northeast stand and I'll have a Southwest stand so that when I do have a consistent wind, they don't have to panic. You know, if, if they get in at three o'clock and we still have daytime swirling winds, which isn't really consistent because you got to remember monsoon season in Southern Utah, we start to get a cooler pattern earlier because we get these rainstorms on those plateaus. And sometimes that does do this. But typically, it's a pre-wind, and it, it's usually fairly consistent. So my evening sits are the ones where we really have a lot of questions, where the morning sit, sits, unless we have a weird weather pattern, is almost always consistent. So so, so it's thermal-based, not prevailing wind-based. Is that typically what you're looking at? Right. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I'm a huge believer in scent control. Like, I am an ozonics freak. And yeah. just like any other whitetail, like... I keep my clothes clean. I keep them in dry bags. I compress things. I, like I'm a freak about that kind of stuff. So huge. How do you do that in a remote okay. camp? When I'm whitetail hunting, I literally wash my clothes every single day. Yeah. Uh, how do you do that in in elk camp? I make sure my guys show up with enough clothes to almost make a week. Oh, and then they have to go to town so often to go down and wash their stuff. I also like have big talks with them about what hiking in like wear this hiking in and then like, so Jeff Helm, I actually made him a changing station where he had a stash of wet wipes and a place to put his stinky clothes and a place to change and put on his dry, clean clothes just before he slipped up into his stand. And that changing station was based below the stand so that when the wind started to get consistent for that evening or the morning, his stinky clothes in that plastic bag stuffed under a log was nowhere near drifting up to where he was sitting in a stand. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like any bow hunter, I'm a freak about scent because, in all reality, that's their biggest attribute it's for elk, especially. So, like when you were up there hunting elk that shut up completely because of the wolves, they were finding their cows with their nose, not calling. Mm-hmm. Right. So, they had to like go extra miles looking for cows, smelling. They do the same thing as uh, wallows are just big scrapes. That's exactly what they are. I've never thought that's amazing. That's exactly what they are. And, and they, they check wallows just like a punch in a time card at a job. They go in and check it and they go to the next one and check it. And they go to the next one and check it. Elk have rub lines in August, only August, not September. You can go into certain canyons and you can walk down a Creek and see rub, 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 rub. That's an August rub line. Wow. That lets me know these bulls are rubbing in here pre-rut. This is a damn good spot for a bow hunt. Whereas if I saw those rub lines I and I had a September tag, I'd pull the pin. 
because not typically cows and August bulls hang out in the same places. It's really rare. So I'd pull the pin the second I saw a rub line if I had a September 20th elk tag in my pocket. Whereas if I was bow hunting, rub lines are key. They're huge. Same thing. Game's the same. Just bigger turf. And that makes me rethink the area I was in last year where we got into a patch of dark timber and we couldn't go anywhere in there and turn a 360 circle without seeing four to six or better rubs like everywhere. And we were in there the first part of September. That that doesn't mean they necessarily won't be in there in September, right, Ryan? Or right. That's what I was just going to say. Was that a bench or was it a creek? Uh, it was up above a creek on a bench. Yeah. Okay. North slope or south slope? Um, it was south slope. So elk rub in the winter, crazy hard. Yep. So south slope makes me question a little bit. That doesn't mean they're not there in August. That might say they were in there in November. It might mm-hmm. say they were in there in March. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So South Slope makes me question a little bit. North Slope, Bench, you had those kind of rubs. That could be September. Yep. But whereas if you're in a creek drainage, rubs like that, I'd go, uh, that might be an August attribute. This guy's like Google. So yeah. he is the Google of, of, of elk hunting. This is <laughs> North Slope, South Slope. This is, this is great. I love it, Ryan. I yep. love it. So, so when you're looking at your stand sites, um, in relation to also your cameras, like Utah is a state that we're allowed to bait. How are you setting those up? Like, are you doing travel corridor areas between like what you know is a a food and a bedding type area, like what you would do on a whitetail? Or are you utilizing the Utah laws on baits and setting some of those up around a potential bait site? to try and get them in during daylight hours. Utah's nice because bait's legal. It, it's not something a lot of people uh, embrace. A lot of people yep. think it's cheating, blah, blah, blah. This is my feeling on bait. Bait doesn't work. Bait stops them in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. It makes them stop, especially, so like I use salt from May to July 20th. July 20th is when even your biggest bulls are done growing. It, it's not August 18th when they peel their velvet. It's it's July 20th is when they stop growing. And that's when they start doing a dry out. The, the velvet stops looking bulbous and it starts tightening around the antlers. Mm-hmm. Once that dry out starts, they don't hit salt ever. So salt is worthless. Now it's cow. Now it's just going to bring in cows, uh, cow, elk, and cattle beef. Yeah. And so, it's pointless to even put it out when you're trying to get elk to stop for a picture now, but early season you're, you're using that to find bulls. So oh, yeah. it is an advantage yep. May through oh, yeah. July 20th. Mm-hmm. Because you're taking inventory at that point, right? It doesn't matter if I'm on a unit I've been on for 10 years or I'm like in Colorado starting new. I, all it does is help me take cameras are inventory. You're just trying to find what the age class is for that unit find the best bull possible, hunt him. It, it, well, you do that for whitetail and mule deer and everything else. Like as hunters, as guys who want to take the oldest age class out, let the younger breed, it, it betters the health of the herd, blah, blah, blah. Wherever you're at, you're going for the oldest age class possible. Right. And that's all cameras are inventory. So at, when people ask me about bait, I don't shy away from telling them bait is awesome, but mm-hmm. 
it's never ever helped kill an elk. I, I'm telling you, I, I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. Elk do not have any consistency over bait. It just doesn't work, but it does stop them for a picture. Now right. mule deer in smaller sections on private land, apples work. Elk, I've never seen it ever once. But on the mule deer, you feel like it has to be a very controlled environment, private land yes. where there's absolutely no pressure. Yeah. Then a mule deer might pattern over apples. But right. to just go I've, out and dump a pile I've of apples on public land, it's not going to work. No, it's not. Because everybody happen. and their brother's doing it. Well, and, and they're just getting pushed all over. Yeah. As with anything, weather trumps everything. Weather trumps everything when you're hunting. So when we talk about moon patterns, moon patterns are awesome. You can look at them and think, these are my best dates. But if you show up and you're in the middle of a heat stroke, like they're not going to move. They're all nocturnal. It doesn't matter what species you're hunting. Weather trumps. Weather trumps bait. But like if, it, if a moon phase clicks in and those cows go hot and it's September 5th, they don't care about food. They, like they're not going to come back just because you have – Apples, I, apples don't really work for elk, but say you have a big pile of, they're not going to come show up. They're more involved, you know, interested in the cows and heat. Right. It's just the way it goes. Weather trumps everything. Interesting. When you were mentioning scent control and ozonics, I was curious, uh, do you find those work in tree stands or is, are they better in ground blinds? And, and also, do you use ground blinds or tree stands or does it depend or how do you do, how do you work that? Well, I'm an outfitter, so. It depends use, on my clientele. Yeah, so use the tools at your if you advantage. Guys were hunting with me. I don't care if you got vertigo. I'm duct taping you to a tree <laughs> because you're both capable. You can get up there, like your scent's better. Tree stands in in uh, mountain type terrain. You get up there another 25 feet. You have a whole different thermal. It's a it's a big deal. And yes, I use ozonics in tree stands. Um, I do think they're more effective in ground blinds. And if I have a hunter that cannot get in a tree stand, I will have them in a blind. No question. So um, you think that a tree stand is better than a ground blind with ozonics? Yes. Interesting. Just because yeah. your thermal level up, up higher. Mm -hmm. And you still have to have good tree stand placement, right? Sure. Like you, You've still got to get in there. So when I'm checking cameras, as I'm starting to narrow down which bulls I'm hunting and which places are most consistent, that's when I start making those rotations later at night or earlier in the morning. So I look at, um, I look at those things. I make those routes. So just so I can figure out, okay, I have a better like downwind in this spot. This is the better tree stand spot because the elk are coming in from here. This is where their pictures are coming. I want to make sure my tree stands down here. So the winds in the hunter's face. Right. Interesting. Okay. How about private land, Ryan? Do you, do you hunt private land at all? And, and what are the private versus public? What are the, the trade-offs? Uh, private's fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I'm doing one in Colorado this year. It's private land. It, it's checkerboarded. There's public in there and, and guys get in and, uh, you know, I, I don't see behaviors changing that much. They still make rotations. Mm -hmm. They still have their places they like to hit. Um, I, I'm seeing all similarities there. The only nice thing is, you know, it keeps a lot of guys from showing up. 
it, I mean, yeah. it's got to be nice. Uh, it's like why I like hunting whitetails back east is because I don't have to scout a ton. I know they're going to show up. It's just a matter of sitting there long enough. And I got a good book. I'll sit there the whole day. You know, I don't stress about it. Public land is hard. Like you've got to deal with guys because they do get pictures of these bulls and I'll always have three or four guys showing up in an area underneath my hunter's tree stand like year after year. It it's pretty consistent and it's okay. It does make it hard, but yeah. that's part of the game, right? If, if it was, if we didn't follow the rules, we would all be trophy hunters, right? right. I, I don't know how many 400 inch bulls or 200 bucks. I would have killed 200 inch bucks. If, I didn't follow the rules, but how we get respect and how we're good at what we do is we follow the rules. And so we've got to deal with the public land hunters and you got to kind of embrace it and get better because that's what gets it done. If you're better than them, you're going to get it done. Yeah. I like how you approach challenges, man. You, you see them as opportunities. That's, that's a big reason for your success. I guarantee mm -hmm. it. That's super cool. How about, uh, you know, earlier I was, I was curious again, some of this is my own curiosity. Um, when I mentioned that bigger bulls, uh, are more call shy, uh, the, the viewers, I, I can see you on video right now. So I saw you kind of shake your head the, uh, negative on that. So I was super curious about that. Cause I've the hunting I've done, I've, I've whatever I'm no, I mean, I've killed a handful of three fifty bulls, whatever, not, nothing compared to your experience, not even like 1%. So what, what, what have you seen as far as I I've, I was kind of um, I've always been of the opinion. I'd prefer to stalk a big bull or pattern a big bull than call the big bull because I, I just, in my head, I, I, I feel like that bull's call shy or he's going to be smarter. And I want, I don't want him to know I'm there. I want to, I want to do it on my terms. Um, I, one story though. Uh, so I was hunting with Sean DeGray, which I know he's a great friend of yours, Ryan. And, uh, so we were, we were sitting, uh, you know, to ambush this big bull that was coming down this draw and, and he was calling, you know, he's bugling every once in a while. And, and Sean knows my, my opinion on, on big bulls. I'm afraid to call to him. I want to do it on my terms. And so we had talked about that and Sean had the camera and we're sitting on this trail and this bull's coming down, but he just stops, he hangs up and we're sitting there for like 45 minutes, maybe an hour it's starting to get a little bit dark or whatever, but I'm, I'm like committed to this, this idea. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden Sean just goes off with this cow in heat estrus call. And I look back and I might give him the death look. I'm like, dude, you know how I feel about this. What are you doing? And this bull just goes nuts. And he comes in on a string within two minutes. He's standing in front of me at 40 yards and I, I hammer him. And I'm like, and Sean's like, see, man, you gotta, you gotta, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. And I mean, it just worked out, but I still kind of feel I, I, like a, a big bull, a big mature bull. I don't want him to know I'm there. So you, you know, I want to hear your, your thoughts on calling mature big bulls. So, well, I'll start with your story. You know what your mistake was? What was that? You're being quiet. It's not, I'm not a, I'm not a big caller. I, I'm like you in, in all reality. I hate giving up my location. I would way, way rather let them keep talking, try to get in front of them, get the wind in my favor and it that way. However, that doesn't always work during the rut. 
Like mm-hmm. I, I like location bugles. I bugle quite a bit when the rut's going. I like, I, I've had days we've called in 20, 30 bulls, 20. I think my max was 27 bulls in one day. Awesome days, but it doesn't work on giant, giant elk. And what works for giant, giant elk in that situation where you were with Sean, you didn't have to cow call. You didn't have to bugle. You didn't, you shouldn't have been like even in distance with each other that you could have said, shut up, don't do that. He should have been behind you another 60 yards sounding like an elk, breaking branches, rubbing a stick on throwing, a tree, throwing some rocks, yeah. Yeah. making right. noise like elk make noise. Cause when it's quiet, that's when their senses are high. When it's quiet, they don't feel like something's right. When it's loud, they're like, oh, hell, the herd's in front of me. This is awesome. I'm going in. Because they have one thing on their mind, and it's not quiet cows. <laughs> right. They want to yep. hear and see and know a herd's there. So as much as lo- bugling's fun and locating's fun, and if you're just hunting on a unit that you just want to kill a nice six-point, go crazy. But unless you're Corey Jacobson, keep that reed in your pocket. <laughs> Shut the hell up. <laughs> Make some noise. Run at them. Elk are aggressive. You don't need the best camo, although you hike better with good gear, right? You hike mm-hmm. longer. You hike further. You, you can resist the weather. I'm a big believer in gear, but camo during the rut is not important. Like, you don't need to hide from these animals. You can make noise. You can stomp around. They can even see you. If you got the wind in your favor, they'll stop and stare at you while you put an arrow in them. Right. Like once the rut kicks in, elk are stupid. And and Doyle Moss made this comment to me once because I was teasing him about killing big mule deer. Hardest part of mule deer is finding them. They're so easy. You get the wind right, they're dead. He's like, yeah, but deer don't bugle. And I laughed at him and I said, <laughs> you don't hunt elk like I do. Because it's very true, right? Like if you're hunting a younger age class and elk do bugle, they're they're giving away their location. That kills them in a lot of instances, but not typically the older age class. In fact, the more I've hunted the older age class bulls, the bulls with the inches do not run herds. It's so rare. The bulls that actually have enough inches to break that F word. Yeah. they rarely run cows. They'll they're follow cruising. the herds. They're, they're cruising. Yeah. They stay yeah. close. But all they do is once they smell a hot cow, they go in, figure out which one it is, pull her out, let her go, and they go back to eating again. Because the reason yep. they have inches is because they're going into winter with a bigger fat content. They're not wow. fighting. They're not mm-hmm. trying to manage all these cows. That's your 340 bulls job. Yeah. And getting run down right. because of it. That's, so that's so he's typically bulls. not bugling as much too. Is that what you're saying? Or, or not at all or just very little? They never respond to cow calls. Okay. That's, a, that's another thing that a lot of guys don't understand. Cow calls work great on younger age class. Cow calls never work on old bulls. They know where the cows are. They know how to rely on their nose. They don't care that they can hear her. All they care about is if they can smell her. Okay. And so it, that can be a huge mistake. Do you use any sense, Ryan, like any, uh, I mean, that that stuff, it's hard to know if it, it's like real. Well, it -hmm. it might work in a tight situation. It, It might stall them for a minute, but just as in anything else, your wind is, you live and die by the wind. 
I well, what I mean is like a, a cow in estrus urine in, in a wallow. Yep. Uh, Nothing. That's not going to work. Never had it work. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Okay. And so like, Ryan, what, what's it, it like as an outfitter, why do you do what you do? Can you tell us some sort of experience that just gives, gives us a view of your happiest day in the field when, when you're like, Oh my gosh, I love my job. Tell tell us one of the many stories that, that brings you to that point. Um, you like what you're good at, right? I, I've seemed to do well with elk. And so I love elk hunting. In fact, I haven't really hunted mule deer. It's been, I don't even know how many years. I, I think the last deer I helped kill was on the Henry's in like 08. And it's not that I wasn't good at it, but limited entry mule deer, I mean, they don't get out of bed till 10 in the morning. I was on the San Juan last weekend. They hang out by the road. I was getting out of my side by side, like thinking I'm sneaking on them to take pictures. And then I realized they didn't care. And I just walk over and start taking pictures. <laughs> like limited entry deer, a totally different game. And I'm just, I like elk. And so, and what I like about it is when plans come together. And so like one story always comes to mind is, is Donna Pickett. Donna is awesome. Her and her husband, um, they're, they're both dentists. One's a practicing family dentist, um, Vic. And then Donna is a, like a specialty. She does like, uh, uh, crowns and root canals and a, I'm not really sure if she's an endodontist or what exactly it was, but they, they do fairly well. Great people. They love bow hunting. They're bow hunting nuts. Now Donna's killed a bunch of big bulls all on high fence. This is her first like public land, big bull hunt for whatever reason. I, I actually think it was Sean DeGray that talked Vic into hiring me, which was great. Where are they from? Well, uh, they live in Salt Lake city. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Yeah, no, they're great people her plan all came together. So for her, I had this bull. A lot of guys were watching this bull because it's in a spot. One of the few you can glass on that unit. And I didn't think he was that big. I thought he was a 370 upper three seventies type bull, big, typical frame, triple brow on one side. I set her up in a tree stand on his exit, expecting five guys to be in their opening day, which there was nice thing was the bull wasn't there. He just wasn't. He just, for whatever reason, he's pulled the pin. He's on some other part of his rotation. So Donna sits in her stand opening day. We're all up there glassing. Bull doesn't show up. I'm like, cool. Um, got her out of stand. We went back, had lunch. I said, I'm going to put you up on this other stand. It's a better evening sit. It's for another bull. It, it got killed last year, two years ago. Nice bull, 390 something. She almost killed him. So she's sitting in stand. That bull's coming in at dark. She can see him walking down through this burn towards her stand. Second, she can't see her pins. He's still 100 yards out. She slips out of stand, <sighs> comes back to camp. Well, while she was in stand for that bull, I was looking for the other bull. I found him. He's walking way out in this desert in these pinions. And he's headed in a certain direction. And I just know where he's going. I'm like, this is awesome. So I get back to camp. She got on this other bull. She's all excited. And I said, look, that stand doesn't work in the mornings. Our best bets to go after this other bull. I saw him tonight. Here's some video. She's like, oh, let's do it. I'm like, but we got to get up at three in the morning. It's a long walk in the desert. 
And she's like, I'll do it. That's fine. Let's do it. So we hike out to this little trickle of water. It's this big. I mean, wow. it, is, it is nothing. It comes up out of the ground two feet later. It's gone again. It's a little tiny puddle. And it's, and, it's uh, miles from the road you're saying. Miles. Uh, but I know that's where he's headed. It's the only water down there. So we get down there first light. We set up some spotters where I was the night before. We're setting up on the water. Nothing. There, nobody's seeing an elk. There's a couple small bulls and some spikes walking around. It seemed like we had a spike walk in on us, if I remember right. And we're sitting okay. there, and this is day two of a 30-day hunt, right? We're sitting on this water hole, and I'm like, we're just going to hang out and be patient. About 8.45, one of my guys gets on the radio. Hey, I just picked him up. I'm like, sweet. Where's he at? Seriously, he's like 80 yards from you. I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, just below you, you can probably see the tops of them. There's a big pile of oak brush. He's laying in the middle of it. I'm like, oh. So her husband gets on the radio. Go kill him. I'm like, <laughs> Our, our wind's still good. I don't feel about good about it. It's eight forty-five. Remember, you know what time does our wind shift? Nine a.m. Right? Nine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't think it's a good idea. And I, I kind of go over. I look at the water. I'm like, no elk's been here. He's gonna come. We're gonna hang out. I got sandwiches. We're cool. Eight. It wasn't quite nine o'clock. My guy gets on the radio. He just stood up. I'm like, sweet. And and. Her husband again, go get him. I'm like, no, we're, he's, it's fine. <laughs> the bull comes over within about 45 yards. I had set Dawn up on this tree with her back. She's facing the wallow. So that, and she's right-handed so that she's right there ready. Right. And I'm just sitting to the side of her with my phone video. <laughs> this bull comes in, starts rubbing a tree, sits there for about 30, 40 minutes. She can't see him. There's two other bulls. They're all rubbing. Realize it's August. Let's see, it would have been August 18th, and that bull shed his velvet the day before on the 17th. Had we got in on him in day one, probably would have killed him in the velvet. Kim Velvet. Would have, oh. would have been cool, but he just rubbed off. He's rubbing again. We're just hanging tight. So here they start to come. They're coming to the water, and I tell her, I'm like, first bull. The bull comes, walks in. She draws a little early. I had set her up on what I thought was a fairly big window. Well, she had another small window. I didn't see. She drew early and I'm like, Oh crap. But bull came to, she punched him. He ran 23 yards, fell over dead. Oh my gosh. Like, oh, that's unbelievable. Those plans come together. That oh. is like everything. And her husband still talks to this day. Ryan is the most amazing guy in the world. He knows everything. And I'm like, no, he just, the I just plan came together. <laughs> Dude, you looked yeah. like a freaking genius wow. on that hunt. You looked like an out. I mean, yeah, you I, find this bull while she's sitting in another stand. Every piece of your plan. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, when those things That's come awesome. together, nothing's better. I mean, you, yeah. you guys both know you've had those things work out for you. I've watched your hunts. You get that. It doesn't come together that often, and that was fun. Yeah. You know, and, when it and does, like you said, like when it does, <laughs> there's nothing better. When it does, you have to just act like it's normal. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, that's what I do. No <laughs> I, I mean, I meant to do that. I knew he was yeah. coming. Yeah. That's no great. big deal. Hey, well, guys, this has been so enjoyable. Ryan, I learned a ton from you. Evan, wasn't this amazing? I, I think we need to do this again. Definitely. Like, there's so much. There's so many more questions I could come up with when it comes to, you know, especially 
early August um, when Utah opens, and then that especially that early that first week of September, because that's generally when I like to to hunt elk too. Is um, coming from Colorado is being in there before that muzzleloader season starts. Well, my my mind was blown at several moments today. I I, I can't believe like how much. Ryan understands these patterns and, and all the work he's put into it to understand these different areas and the way elk act. I mean, it's, it literally is mind blowing. I, I didn't expect, like, we, I, I thought you would say that you might have like two points of their pattern figured out, but you're like, you're having them show up on, you know, a dozen or more cameras. That's unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. So you had said earlier, 43 cameras on one animal. How many cameras total do you think you're running in a year? Uh, like, wait, like, like max cameras like, when you're out trying to find animals. Typically, the cameras I'm constantly checking. Now, realize these are all miles. That, that's my limiting factor is me, right? Like, I can't right. check all these cameras. So, typically, by seasons kind of come together, we have 83 cameras we're checking constantly. Wow. Well, statewide in utah i think me and my guys are running about 170 wow jeez you know good i have a good two dozen out in colorado and a couple in arizona jeez nice but it like consistently checking 60 60 to 83 is a max that's a lot yeah especially like because that's what's important about okay we found a bull now we're going to focus in on that bull and, mm-hmm. those other and then cameras again, are working. shifting, shifting those cameras to get more information about one specific animal. And those other know. cameras are helpful because they're patterning some other bulls that maybe we need to fall back on later. That happens. Yep. Right. But in all reality, I can't stay on top of all those cameras. 60 to right. 80 is still, I mean, this weekend I maybe only did 18, 20 miles, but last weekend I did 36. Like that's yeah. insane 36.2 on my feet like it's a lot of miles yeah. how many boots do you go through a year Two. Oh my gosh yep that is intense you know so we hear all this knowledge and and it's there's so much work behind it to, to have yeah. figured all this out and then continue even though you figured it out to continue to have real-time information for your hunters is a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of effort. Yeah. Well, hats off to you, fun. Ryan. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. It's awesome. Well, well, we really, I super, super awesome. Yeah, really this enjoyed this. Thanks for your incredible. time. Thanks for your time. I'm, I'm sure the listeners are going to be so appreciative of you be, being willing to share your knowledge. And you know what? That's one of those things. Share this knowledge as much as you want, because who's, who's going to be willing to put that work in? <laughs> yeah. Not many guys. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. A lot of truth to that. Well, thanks guys. Yep. That was awesome. It's a pleasure, guys. All right. Thank you, guys. See ya.